Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I am Travis Shaddix. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to the channel, this channel is designed and intended to explore our knowledge on turfgrass science. Um, hopefully we're developing, hoping, well, uh, initial development of critical thinking and learning how to go find published research and evidence and all those fun things. Thank you all for coming and already participating in the chat, I see. We have a, a paper from Italy. Yes, Randy, is, this paper is in, actually intended for the European audience, so I'm glad you caught on to that. Um, this paper is from North, Northwest Italy, so we're going to look at this today, some Northwest Italy fall fertility stuff. I see a lot of positive comments about last night's show. Dr. Bigelow is a, a uh, big figure in the turf grass science community. He's been around for many years and done a lot of really good science and put out some good grad students and I was really happy that he was uh, able to and willing to come on the show last night. I didn't realize when I asked him that he was going to be at the ASA, but he said, sure, I think I can actually make it. I'll just come over in the evening. And sure enough, he did. And uh, he has many more, like the, like many of the other, actually like all the other authors I've had on so far, he has many other papers that um, I would like to go over. Actually, I've already gone over one of his other papers. And then last night was his second paper. So whenever the topic comes up and he has a paper on it, I hope that he'll uh, be willing to share his time with us and and uh, provide some input. His input last night was was critical. He was able to kind of set the stage a little bit, contextualize what was going on and why he did it. It's one of his first studies he did, I guess, was was that paper. When he was a when he came in as as an assistant professor there at Purdue, so interesting to hear from him. But I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Again, Thursday night seems to be a pretty good night. Our the most people watch is is on Thursday night, or I'm sorry, on is on Wednesday night. Um, yeah, the timing. Uh, Polo mentions the interesting about the timing of the fertilizers. That's that's sort of what we've been going over the last month or two. And for the most part, one thing I found interesting last night was for the most part, the papers are generally saying the same thing is that the earlier, you know, putting down fertilizer before it freezes, basically, or getting it down and getting it, you know, not just before it freezes, but getting it time to take it up, you know, before the turf grass shuts down. And that paper last night, he had those fall, those November applications in Indiana. And he mentioned that he he did it because it was, you know, traditional practices back then to do that. So he included it as a treatment. But he also mentioned that he wouldn't recommend recommend doing that today because of the environmental risk. I thought that was interesting because the November application of that, <clears throat> I believe it was a pound and a half in November, had good results in his study. But as we've shown, and as many other authors have have published, those later applications provide some obviously some turf value, but the risk is just too much. You know, not only economic because you're losing that money or you might not get that back, but also environmental. And you can just avoid that and put it down in the spring. 
So <clears throat> his paper showed value in November, uh, but he, I'm glad he came on because he mentioned he wouldn't recommend that. So, uh, interesting to hear from him on that topic. Before I forget, uh, I mentioned, or I didn't mention, but I caught, uh, later. I, okay, let me back up. I did not catch during the live show a day or two ago, a comment that was made. And I wanted to address it real quick is that, um, there was a comment made when I was showing a video about the person's appearance. It wasn't a particularly rude comment, but it was uh, borderline rude. If I was watching it and I heard someone make, if I was that person and I heard someone make that comment, I might be offended by it. It wasn't necessary. So I wanted to make a, address that real quick and move on. On this channel, I highly encourage everybody to aggressively and assertively critique scientific theory, scientific conclusions, the results, criticize them, open them up, read through them, challenge them, challenge opinions, challenge claims, be very assertive in those, in that regard. I, I highly encourage that sort of behavior, the, the beliefs that people hold. It's, it's important to me, I believe in our society to actively challenge those beliefs and those management practices and why we're doing things. That's what epistemology is. But when it comes to a person's appearance or the human being in themselves, I'm not going to tolerate any sort of criticism or um, judgment on a human being, the way they look, the way they sound, the way they talk, the way they speak, whether they're male or female or black or white, or it doesn't, I couldn't care less. We're all humans. And on this channel, I'm going, I'm not going to tolerate sort of any sort of personal criticism of a human, of a person themselves, but I highly encourage criticism of their beliefs. Okay. So please refrain from commenting on a person's appearance or anything about that specific person as a human. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen again, but if it does, I may have to, I, I don't know how I would do it, but I may have to start limiting people's, you know, interaction. If you're going to have comments about, about the person themselves. Okay. So please don't do that. Okay. Today, I don't have a video, but um, I kind of wish I did. It seems like people are enjoying that. But I don't have any videos today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump into the paper. And then I'm going to back up and go into the internet and show you kind of what where the setting is. So the title of today's paper is timing of fall nitrogen applications on tall fescue turf and it sounds very similar to what we've been talking about obviously this is published by i'm, I'm going to mispronounce these names i apologize to the italians listening um, this is published by i would think that'd be gross grossi maybe it's grazi i don't know how you'd say that word in, in italian luli which is a nickname for my wife <laughs> Volta, Volta, Volterani and Mieli. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing those names. I'm 
It's not my intent at all. And it was published in a journal. In, let me in a journal that is a turf crash journal. But I want to um, provide a little bit of background about journals. And I've, I've mentioned many times I'm going to go into the differences in journals and so forth. But at, at this point, we've been going over uh, journal articles that have been in journals like crop science like agronomy journal general environmental quality uh hort, hort science i don't know if we've gone into any hort tech journals or not but these are um journals that are considered sort of the top tier of our turf grass science field there's other clearly other journals that that you know are equivalent equivalent to to crop science that i have that i haven't discussed but those are journals that have a, a fairly robust review process and are refereed. And what 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 is what does the term referee mean? Oftentimes, you'll hear in our community or through extension presentations or sometimes on the news, you'll hear, "Oh, well, the peer review process is critical," or "This paper was peer reviewed." Um, or they'll use this phrase peer reviewed and what peer reviewed means is it's been, uh, evaluated or judged or reviewed by specialists in the, in the similar area. So for example, if I'm a turf grass scientist and I have an article that comes out, it's been reviewed by my peers in the field of turf grass science or soil science or whatever the subject is that I submitted the article on. That, that's that's a peer review that's what that means but it might not necessarily be refereed okay so all refereed papers are peer-reviewed but not all peer-reviewed papers are refereed and what what is the difference the difference between a refereed article and a peer-reviewed article is a refereed article has the potential of rejection Okay, so it would be a referee, a submission to a referee journal would be reviewed by specialists in that area, and they would provide a judgment as to whether or not they deem it to be acceptable for publication. And if the, in the eyes of the reviewer and the eyes of the editor, the paper is unacceptable, it will be rejected. That's a referee journal, refereed paper. Peer reviewed is not necessarily that. For example, what would be a peer reviewed paper that's not refereed? Almost all extension publications extension bulletins are peer-reviewed but they're not i don't know of any of them that are refereed in other words there's no chance that it's going to be rejected you can put into a, a um, extension publication information that may be questionable and still get out whereas that probably would be rejected in in a, in a refereed journal um, so i'm saying that sort of a long-winded way of saying that this paper today is technically in a referee journal but this particular journal is on the low end of quality in our field i'm not saying the information is any less accurate this particular it doesn't mean you know a, a paper could be in a peer-reviewed journal that's not refereed and still be completely valid and accurate but it just means my confidence in the content of that paper is nowhere near as high as it would be in say a crop science or you know, it'll go all the way to the top science or nature, something like that. If this, this particular journal, oh, they don't have it listed. Where did, I thought they had it listed. Hmm, they don't have it listed. Well, anyway, 
well, it was in the international, I could have sworn, oh, here it is at the top. The International Turfgrass Society Research Journal. So every four years, the International Turfgrass Research uh, Society uh, was formed in 70s or 80s, 84, 80, 80, something like that. And they have a meeting every four years. And it goes around the world and they move it. Usually, they I thought in the past they would have it in a, in a location where the World Cup would be held prior to the World Cup. But I, maybe I'm off on that. Um, it seems like that was, maybe that was just coincidental. But anyway, they would ha they'll have it every four years in China or United States or Italy or wherever they're going to have it. And every four years, authors will submit a slew of papers to get a paper in the journal for that. So the journal's only published every four years at that meeting. And um, I believe it's every four years. I don't want to be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it's every four years. So anyway, a lot of journal articles go out, go out to be reviewed and they get put in. And if they get accepted, they go to the meeting and they present the paper. The content of this journal and i'm not going to i'm not going to use my words this came from another professor at a meeting <laughs> so it's not travis shattuck saying this they said um i just thought it was funny they said at uh at a national meeting they said uh the international turfgrass meeting will be held here or whatever and it will be will begin accepting articles for review on such and such date and so if you have any, if you have any papers left over that have been rejected from other journals and you're, you're about to throw them away, be sure to submit them to this journal. Now that's not me saying that. Okay. <laughs> so, but <clears throat> his point was a lot of articles get submitted to this journal that have been rejected from other journals, or they're just not quite robust enough to be accepted by other journals. And so they get submitted to the international journal. So I'm saying saying that it doesn't mean that the content is, you know, not valid. But you have to understand the hierarchy of evidence. And the, the hierarchy of evidence only starts when you publish it. But when you publish it, I'm assuming it's in a refereed journal. And this journal is questionably refereed because almost nothing gets rejected from the International Turfgrass Society Research Journal. In fact, and I have, I have, I don't know, two or three papers in this journal, but almost nothing gets rejected. Almost everything that gets submitted gets accepted. Very rarely. I don't know what the acceptance rate of this is, but give you an idea, acceptance rates of really, really good journals is very low, like less than 20% sometimes will get accepted because the standards are so high. In this journal, I don't know what it is, but I suspect it's very, very high, like 80, 90%, something like that could be wrong someone can post something and show me that i'm wrong but the point being is that i'm going to start going through this so that at some point i'll just have an entire episode so you'll understand that just because it's published doesn't that's the first step but you have to evaluate where it was published first so if you publish something in pos1 and i left the l out for a reason I have very little confidence that turfgrass information in POS one is accurate because the, the, the reviewers of POS one, and I can speak from experience on this are not always turfgrass reviewers aren't always specialists in turfgrass or soil science. I could submit an article to that journal and, and it's, it could be on turfgrass and it can be reviewed by a biochemist at some university that doesn't know anything about turfgrass. They know everything about biochemistry. Well, there's going to be a disconnect. There's going to be a, you know, translation issue here. We don't, you know, they don't understand the systems as well as I do. And I don't understand their systems as well as they do. So 
I'm just saying that you have to evaluate the journal and you have to make sure that it's one referee would be the top, you know, criteria and that it's a valid referee journal, meaning it's a turf grass, it's a reputable turf grass referee journal, uh, not one that just accepts anything from anybody with very little chance of, of rejection. So having said all that, um, again, I'm just trying to set the stage for future, you know, development and our, our critical thinking skills. We're going to get into this paper. This is an extremely short paper. Uh, uh, so what I wanted to, oh yeah. So Randy, what I'm going to do is so on that note, he's talking about the climate here. Pisa, Italy is almost the same climate like mine. I'm actually going to go to the internet. So everybody knows this, so where it was or what, what we're talking about. I actually highlighted it here somewhere. The re oh, here it is. The research was carried out, uh, in, whoops, I got the wrong thing. The research was carried out in September, 2002 at the, uh, search, so sport turf research center in Pisa, at Pisa University in Pisa, Italy. Okay. So for us in the United States, you know, we need to be somewhat aware of what the situation is over there in terms of the climate. So I hope what I got here, I may end up messing this up. Oh, okay. I got it right. Good. My computer crashed right before I came on today. So I wasn't sure it would come up. So what is Pisa, Italy like in terms of its climate? It's somewhat analogous or similar to the Pacific Northwest of the United States, where the summers are dry, typically dry and hot, and the winters are mild and wet, give or take. So the uh, average precipitation in, in parentheses are going to be English. So in January, February, March, and April, you're going to see two and three inches of rain a month, and it's going to decline as we move into the summer, June and July and, and August. That's when the rain will typically be very low, one inch a month, okay? And then it's going to pick back up as we go into the fall in Pisa, Italy. The, the temperatures, the average, or the daily mean, and the, day, the average daily temperature in Fahrenheit in January <clears throat> is in the 40s. So it doesn't really get down too much below freezing on average. And in the summertime, it's in the high, the again, the average of the day is in the mid 70s whereas the average high is not even in the 90s so we're talking about mild mediterranean climates that are dry in the summer and wet in the winter and that's somewhat analogous to the pacific northwest of the united states okay so that's sort of i don't know if that's completely fair to say but i'm that's my best you know best shot at kind of comparing what the climate is in pisa italy to a climate that you might be familiar with here in the United States. And we're going to find something very similar to what we've also found in the Northwest United States. It's a very, very short article. I think it's three pages. I'm probably just going to read through most of this. The, the introduction, as many are, they're just making this, setting the stage, talking about um, <clears throat> tall fescues being used in Southern uh, Europe here in the last this was when was this published this was published in 2014 or no 2005 this was published in 2005 so 15 years ago or so something like that in the last 10 years tall fescue has been increasingly used for quality turf thus becoming the dominant species in southern europe i don't know if bulgaria randy is you know dominated by tall fescue or not i don't know what the grass is there but um they're they're saying that it's been more common tall fescue has been more common in southern europe Fall fertilization plays a key role in obtaining a satisfactory quality and functioning 
functionally functionality rating on tall fescue during winter months, and particularly the north November to March period, without an adequate fall nitrogen fertilization, the fall turf takes on an aesthetically unsatisfactory appearance due to the tendency of older leaves to yellow. <clears throat> this can happen sometimes, but as we've seen, sometimes it doesn't happen. The turf quality stays quite high if you don't have that fall fertility. There was that paper a day or two ago where we talked about the spring, the heavy spring fertility uh, resulted in the most uniform color throughout the year compared to the heavy fall fertility. Both of those treatments in that study had nitrogen applications in the summertime as well. <clears throat> um, an appropriate fall nitrogen application on tall fescue considerably increases winter quality of the turf. The did a, let's go down here. Sweeney in '89 and Hovland '87 found that better results are obtained by concentrated nitrogen applications in fall instead of spring. There's something in here. I don't know if we ever covered the Kosky and Street paper, but Kosky and Street compared different programs of fall nitrogen fertilization on Rebel Tall Fescue and obtained satisfactory quality on the turf when nitrogen was applied towards the end of November. Regardless of the form, I don't know. I'll have to go back and look and see if we covered this uh, Tony's paper or not. I don't know if he did this in Colorado or where he did that at, but um, I'll, I'll go back and check to see if I didn't if I covered this. If I didn't cover this, I'll pull it up and cover it. Regarding potassium fertilization, it is suggested that it should in, should induce a certain stress resistance. I'm going to be going over potassium probably for quite a while at some point. It's inter I'm going to introduce the topic here. To I've already gone over potassium fertilization and turf in one of the early podcasts. I'll probably go back and redo that redo that um, chapter. But we'll be going over potassium because there's this idea that potassium induces a certain stress resistance or heat resistance or cold resistance or you know traffic resistance and all these other things. And uh, most of that is is not uh, uh, justified. But every now and then you'll find some some you know, benefit, but it's usually not justified. Uh, it should induce a certain stress resistance factor in the plant, such as cold resistance in winter or drought tolerance in summer without influencing biomass production or quality ratings. Now this Templeton 66 paper, they did, that's a paper they worked on forage grasses. And I don't mind comparing forage grass fertility to turf grass fertility in some cases. I don't mind that, but in this particular paper, if I remember correctly, and I'm going to get it wrong, I know, but in this particular paper, the the uh, it says cold resistance in the winter or drought tolerance in the summer without influencing biomass. I think that was sort of questionable in that paper. In other words, it wasn't a consistent result, and it was on forage grasses. They were growing hay, I think it was, for for livestock. So it's not a very strong citation, I guess is what I'm saying. However, Cook 76 didn't report any evidence of fall potassium application inducing low temperature stress resistance on tall fescue. So here's a paper here that's, I'll pull this paper, I already pulled it's on my article somewhere, it's on my folder somewhere, where the fall potassium application didn't provide any value. There was one paper where they did three or four years. I don't know if it was the Cook paper or the Templeton paper, I'll have to go back and look, but there was one paper where they did potassium and nitrogen for three or four years, and there was and they, they showed only a very mild, virtually biologically almost insignificant benefit to applying potassium only in the very last year. The first two or three years, there was no benefit. So all that money they spent on potassium applying it, uh, they didn't receive anything in return for that. 
in the last year there was a slight benefit so um, that's generally what you'll see and you'll see almost never you almost never see a benefit to applying potassium on soils that already have sufficient potassium so we'll get into that the aim of this study was to evaluate the effects of different timing of fall nitrogen and potassium fertilization on winter quality of tall fescue now it looks fall nitrogen and potassium okay it looks like this could be a good paper right like and it is a good paper but i mean nitrogen and, and potassium on fall fertility but as you'll see I, they don't really do a good job of explaining why they didn't show it but the potassium didn't do anything in this study and they they don't show any data nor do they explain it didn't do any at the end they, in the conclusions they just conclude potassium didn't do anything but they don't show the results or discuss that so i don't know why they did that but um, I mean, I, I was excited cause I'm like, okay, I'm going to see both nitrogen and potassium, but I didn't see any data. So it's another example, like just because the treatment didn't do anything, doesn't mean you should simply exclude the data. And that happens a lot, at least put it in an appendix table, you know? So, so if somebody in the future wants to actually go and look at the data and determine for themselves, what was the magnitude of change or the, the the magnitude total of not change but the magnitude of what was in the tissue or what the re, what the results were and how they did not differ we can go look at it rather than just saying there was no differences data not shown well i think a typical person probably be okay with that but i'm not typical you know i'd like to see the data and see the table and you know be able to reproduce it if i want to show it on a slide in a presentation this is these were the potassium results nothing instead of saying nothing happened i can actually show you know, a line graph or a bar graph, but I can't do that if you don't give me the data. Anyway, uh, materials and methods. So the research was conducted in, in Pisa, Italy on a clay loam soil with a pH of 6.5, uh, 32 parts per million of P205 in the Olsen method. I'm glad they put that in there. And then 20, 21 parts per million of exchangeable K2O. I guess it's K2O. They're saying P205 and K2O, so... So the actual phosphorus is less than this, right? And the actual potassium is less than that. And I don't know this Dirk Scheffer method. I've never used it, so I'm not sure what that is. But to me, it looks like the phosphorus and the potassium could be considered low in this soil. Uh, let's finish the materials and methods, and I'll come back to these tables. They used tall fescue, Festuca rundinaceae, and then the, the, the cultivar was Arminda, and they were seeded in October 2001 and received no fertilization after April. So they seeded it in October and they, uh, they fertilized it and then they stopped in April 2020, the following spring. Nitrogen fertilization consisted of one pound of nitrogen as ammonium sulfate with two rates of potassium, no potassium, or three pounds of potassium as potassium sulfate were applied. So um, not a huge deal here. I'm just saying it. To say it is that um normally you wouldn't want to um you wouldn't want to include a sulfate salt if you're looking at things like potassium or magnesium or manganese uh, even nitrogen you really wouldn't want to include the sulfate if you can avoid it because the sulfur itself can cause a response so 
as I've shown in, I don't know if I showed it in, on online, on Twitter, or I don't know how I showed it. I'll eventually get to it here. No, oh, I think I showed it on a podcast once, either either Polo's podcast or the Grass, I can't remember, Grass Factors podcast, I can't remember, where the application of potassium resulted in a, a, mag, a really profound response, a green response to the application of potassium. But it turned out it wasn't from the potassium, it was from the sulfur, the sulfate. And the reason I knew that is because I used potassium chloride in the control plots. So if it was from potassium, the control plot would have had an equal greening, but it didn't. The, the control plot looked the same as nothing. Um, and then I applied potassium sulfate. And so I knew in that study, I was looking for the sulfur. I was, it was a sulfate, sulfate study. But they saw this response from potassium sulfate and you would you would have gone well i got a great response from potassium well in fact you didn't you got it from sulfur so in general you wouldn't want to do this but because this nitrogen source also contains sulfate you know i don't know what the control didn't didn't have anything but the nitrogen form also contains sulfate you, but he's going to have a control up here that had nothing so from a critical review standpoint if you're going to see a response in this study from potassium and you're using potassium sulfate as a reviewer i would ask how do you know it was from potassium and not from the sulfate and then show them the reductions in sulfate emissions and depositions and the newer publications of sulfur or turf plant responses corn and turf to sulfur things like gypsum you know are showing responses because they're sulfur deficient so in other words the design itself is minimally questionable because if you're going to look at potassium, you got to look at potassium, not confounded with potential response from sulfate. Anyway, that's maybe deep level critical thinking stuff here, but anyway, something to think about. The timing of nitrogen fertilization was considered the main treatment. So the months. Secondary treatments were applications or absence of potassium. So I'm assuming this was a split plot. I'm not really sure. It says secondary order plots. Maybe this is the way they word things in Europe. I'm not sure. But secondary order plots were this. So it sounds to me like it was a split plot. And then um, treatments were applied every 14 days starting on the 30th of September 2002. So the seven application dates were September 30th and then 14 days later, October, the middle of October, the end of October, the middle of November, the end of November the middle of December and the end of December. So they're applying them every two weeks, starting at the basically October one, the end of September. They're applying them every two weeks and they're using those dates of applications as fixed effects to compare differences between those dates of applications. The mowing height was maintained at three centimeters. So by the way, on tall fescue, this three centimeters, which is just a little bit more than one inch. Sometimes I get this question like, you know, what should tall fescue be cut at? You know, in Kentucky, generally most of our publications will show the extension publications will show three inches is generally what we recommend for home lawns in Kentucky, you know, three to four inches. And, uh, the, the problem with that is some of the newer auto mowers, I'll leave the brand names out of it. Cause they're not paying me. <laughs> they don't get a freebie. Um, one of the brands only goes to 2.4 inches it doesn't go up to three inches and our recommendations say three inches so the that particular mower unfortunately is sort of left out because 
it don't, it won't cut as high as what we recommend cutting it. But we did a study with that mower and found that the turf grass looked perfectly fine at 2.4 inches. Tall fescue turf looked fine at 2.4 inches. You can cut tall fescue much lower than three inches and be fine. Okay. I can get into those mowing height stuff if you want to at some point in the future. But one reason why we keep it at three inches is because in general, the stresses are going to be less at three inches. The homeowners who aren't necessarily on top of things and, you know, fine tuning their program and really having a, you know, a top tier lawn. If you cut that down low, half an inch or one inch, just as a, the lower you cut it on a grass like tall fescue, the more and more risk you have of creating other issues, right? Because you're cutting the leaf off so much and you're getting it down so low that you're going to impart some additional stress on it that may not be, may be difficult to manage. So that's one reason why we have the, the cutting heights so high because the stresses and the, the buffer, if you want to call it that, the buffer of messing things up is much greater when you, the, the turf, when you get it closer to two and a half or three inches. But in this study, they cut it just barely above one. Okay. And I'm just saying that to say this, even though it might look odd to cut in our world and in the United States to cut something a little over one inch, I, I am pretty confident that you can do it. No problem. Especially in a situation where you're, you're at a sport turf Institute and you're probably maintaining it pretty well. You're probably on top of it. You're probably keeping it maintained and you're keeping an eye on it regularly. Um, I don't see really much wrong with it as long as you're willing to, to to keep an eye on it, cutting it that low, just barely, basically it's an inch, an inch and a quarter, whatever it is for tall fescue, even though from our, from your perspective or my perspective, you might initially think that's too low. I, I don't feel that way as long as I know the people maintaining it or know what they're doing. Um, okay. The following parameters were evaluated by visual assessment. Color, one to nine. They don't include this, the uh, minimum acceptable limit, but later in the paper they talk about, um, it's probably around, I think it's six because they talk about numbers in the, in, the, in the table. And then winter quality from one to nine, and they measured it every 14 days. Percent ground cover every 14 days. I don't know what they're talking about, percent ground cover. Then they, and they only have one paragraph, and they say there was no difference, so they just say there's no difference. Uh, let's keep going. At the end of the trial, uh, core samples were taken for shoot density and leaf densities were measured. So they took leaf density through cores. The, okay, so let's get to the results. Let's say we're almost done. So this is a very short paper. The results. The control treatment showed a progressively decreasing color intensity from an initial rating of 600, 6.0 in September to less than 5 at the end of the year with 2.5 was reached. Okay, so let's go up here and look at the control. This is the effect. This is the table effect of fertilizer application timing on turf color. So they started in September and I've, I've highlighted the control in red. So what I wanted to point out is all the turfs were six at the beginning and you can see if they did nothing, it remained acceptable for the, until the middle of October. Well, I guess until the end of October and then it starts declining to 5.5 and it can, and then it stays around that number until later in the winter in December and you know, later in December starts getting down below five. And it stays down in the fours. Now we're down in the fours in December, January, all the way through February. We're quite low, three and a half, two and a half in, in February. So if we didn't do anything, didn't apply any nitrogen or any potassium, anything like that, the, the color in the winter was quite poor from tall fescue in Pisa, Italy with no nitrogen. Okay, so 
you were going to know that it's going to be mostly chlorotic, chlorotic, probably thin. It's not going to look well at all at a 3.9 on average. Okay. So that's a good thing in terms of the study results. We want to control to, um, we want the turf grass area to be conducive to the response we're looking for or the response that, that the, 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 the treatment is intended to impart. Okay, if the treatment, if the control was a nine all the way across the board and you go, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to apply nitrogen and see what happens. You can't go from a nine to a 10. I mean, you're not Nigel Tufnell, right? You're not going to go to 11, all right? So you need a site that is, you know, conducive to a response because you're going to, in that case where you're already a nine, you're going to say, well, the nitrogen didn't do anything. Well, the nitrogen can't do anything. It can't increase it from a nine to a 10. A nine is the top of the chart. So um so this site was a very good site is my point for to see it to see a response when we are in uh september we applied a product in september october and you can see this is the same thing that happened in miltner's paper where the, you know the november application hadn't been applied yet until november 11th so the the night the november treatment this 5.5 and all the preceding dates are the same as the control. In other words, nothing had been done, so nothing has happened. And when we applied that, that 14 days later, you start to see the you start to see the quality of the color increase in two weeks from the application. And then you see the basically the same thing from the prior treatment. So on October 28th, that's when that fertilizer was applied, and you see the you see the quality go up. Okay, so all these numbers in here are all non-treated turf. Okay. And what I want to point out is the, when it's applied in September, you see the quality go up immediately to 7.5. went from 6 to 7.5 to 8 a month later, okay? Or no, two weeks later. September, October, yeah. So two weeks later, you go from a 6 to an 8. And it stays acceptable above 6 for the entire December time period, October, the September application of, it was two pounds in, as ammonium sulfate, stayed acceptable from September all the way through to the end of the year, December 30th. In January is when the quality from that September application declined below acceptable limits, 5.8. That's probably minim minimally acceptable. It's indistinguishable from six. But when you get five and a half, fives, so it starts to go down. And the quality of that September application, the turf from that September application is unacceptable after January. Basically, January and thereafter it is unacceptable. So it didn't, it wasn't enough or it wasn't late enough, whatever, however you want to say it. It wasn't near the same response as that same amount of nitrogen applied a little bit later. So let's go a little bit later. If you have the application in, let's say, late November, November 25th, so the application occurred here, and then remember the turf is still not, has, has nothing on it yet. You see, so you, this whole time, the, the turf was acceptable for a month or so and then unacceptable for all of October, basically, and all of November. If you waited until the end of November, most of the turf is either minimally acceptable or, or not acceptable. Then you apply it. December, it starts to go up. Okay, we're right here. So the December quality is, is, is now acceptable from the, November, the late November application. And you'll see here, the late November application remains acceptable for a long, long, long time for the remainder of the study all the way through here. Okay, that November 25th application, probably should have just highlighted that, is acceptable. Okay, let me just erase that. And then this November 25th application is, is acceptable later in the year. Okay, 
Same thing goes for the December 9th application. Same thing goes for the December 23rd application. And even the same thing goes for, well, the, December, the November 11th application becomes unacceptable or minimally acceptable towards the end of the year. But this, this right here is, is pretty good. Okay. The November, the November 11th and the November 25th application. Okay. I'm going to get somewhere with this. Uh, but I want to point out that the September was probably a little too early. And it was later in the season when we saw a little bit more prolonged uh, response and the quality of the turf moves acceptable in terms of the color um, throughout the remainder of the year. So you might have the same, you might have the same longevity of response. In other words, the number of months that it was acceptable. See September, you're going to go from September all the way through December 30th, right, is acceptable. And then it's unacceptable. Well, it, if you just wait and do it in this no, November, you don't have acceptable turf before that, but then you have acceptable turf after that. It's not rocket science, okay? Remember, this is a Mediterranean climate that is not really, really cold. Okay. So, let's get to the... Um, the next table, because I'm going to come back to that table in a minute, or I'm going to come back at least to the topics of that. Effective fertilizer application timing on winter quality. Okay. So that was the color. This is the quality. The November and 11th and 25th applications you'll see are um, acceptable in January, February. Uh, at the beginning of March, it's minimally, I would say this is slightly below, probably indistinguishable from acceptable, but it's it's 5.8. And then in March, night at the end of March, middle of March, it goes down slightly and then comes back up in March at the end of March. December applications were acceptable the entire time with the exception of 5.9 here or there, okay? Whereas the September application was only um, acceptable in the beginning of January and the beginning of February and it was unacceptable. Uh, it was unacceptable here at, let me just highlight that in red. It was unacceptable here going into February and March, okay? So it's pretty, pretty cut and dry. Early applications provided a little bit of color and quality early on and then faded and later applications didn't have the quality as much early on and then increased okay and the reason i'm saying that is that that if you remember from dr miltner's paper which was conducted in two locations on eastern washington state and western washington state he concluded that the eastern washington state the critical application deadline was about a month earlier i think it was maybe October or November. I can't remember. The, I can't remember the month. But on Western Washington, he, he concluded that you could go into December because of the warmer climate on the western coast of Washington, closer to Seattle. And that's a very similar climate as this, where in Seattle, it's wet in the winters and dry in the summer. It doesn't get super cold on the western side of Washington, and it doesn't get super hot. Very similar to this sort of climate. So whenever someone says... You shouldn't fertilize after November. Shouldn't fertilize after December. I may have mentioned that once or twice, um, and that's mis that's me misspeaking. What we're really talking about is when the turf shuts down. It, so in when I say November, December, I'm talking about after it's it's dormant and there's no cell division or cell elongation. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense economically or environmentally to be putting down nitrogen after it's shut down. Like this morning, there's frost all over the grass. There's ice crystals everywhere on the grass on the roofs on the cars everywhere and this was the first day that we had a significant frost and it's the second day of november okay 
I've been mowing, unfortunately. I've been having to walk mow my lawn the whole the whole year. And it has drastically reduced in the last two weeks, its growth rate. I'm not cutting near as much grass. I'm mowing it now because I got a bunch of leaves and I mulch them up. But I'll mow it again tomorrow, actually, if there's no frost. Um, but it's very little grass growth. So my grass is starting to shut down. And it's the beginning of November in Lexington, Kentucky. So <clears throat> don't. You don't need to go by a date per se across the world. Okay. It's more of the, the growth habit or the growth, you know, style or habit of the, of the turf itself. There'll be summers. I mean, I'm sorry, there'll be winters. Well, last winter, Halloween, it was warm. I was walking around in shorts and this year I was, I had fleece lined jeans and, you know, long sleeve, heavy, thick jackets and hoods on and, you know, covering my head. It was super cold this Halloween. So in your general area, you can have general rules of thumbs, like generally speaking, the first of November, the turf will probably start to slow down, but it, it might not necessarily be the case. You kind of got to take it as the grass is growing. You need to kind of be aware of how it's growing. That's really, I think what most scientists would, would say, we're looking at a date here, but the date is just an arbitrary number. What, what, what the application timing should be based around is the growth habit of the turf more than just an, an arbitrary number on a, on a calendar. Okay. In this case, he's saying you can go out in November or December and probably be better off than September, but it's because the growth rate of the, of the turf is still, uh, growth is still occurring later in the year in this particular climate. Okay. So be, please be aware of that. And, and, and if I've misspoken or you've missed, if I've missed, you know, I've said something incorrectly in the past, I, it wasn't intentional. I'm not saying don't apply after November. I'm saying your turf is slowing down in the Northern Hemisphere. Your turf is slowing down in November and December. And at some point it's probably going to stop in, in many cases, many cases, not in all cases. And it just makes less and less sense to, to apply soluble nitrogen even slow release nitrogen to some degree later in this later in the season as the turf continues to slow down. Um, I won't really go into the timing of the, the turf height and the dry clipping yields and all this stuff. I'll just I'll just cut straight to the the conclusions. I think I'll just read the winter quality. What he wrote here: good winter quality was achieved with October twenty eight and November eleven applications, although they fell slightly below sufficient quality at the beginning of March. In the January-March period, the last three applications, November 25th, December 9th, and December 23rd, always achieved sufficient quality with peak values close to 7. Okay, So in his climate, in northwest Italy, these later applications are likely um, more beneficial than the early fall applications. Okay. And, and it, I don't know the climate that well over there, but the, the risk of environmental leaching, of course, environmental impairment is going to increase, you know, as the turf slows down. But in his climate, it appears the turf grass is growing well, continuing to grow well. In fact, the, 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 the uh, turf clippings, here's the clipping yields in January and in March. And you can see the clippings in March are much higher than in January, but the clippings from these, uh, the clippings from these nitrogen applications in October and, and December are still quite high, you know, seven, six, six point nine grams per meter squared. Whereas the September application had basically slowed down to it's barely growing. It's 1.4. So the growth habit of this turf grass 
and applied with nit- or growing with nitrogen applied in November is you know five times greater than the than the nitrogen or than the turf grass uh, under the September application of nitrogen. So you can see it's still growing here in in January. So it's not just sitting there dormant. Okay. Meaning, my point is is that yes, the environmental risk will still be still continue to increase as we move into the winter. But in this case, this turf grass is still growing even in the middle of January at the end of January. Okay. This would be zero in Lexington, Kentucky. We wouldn't even go out and do a harvest in the, at the end of January. One, there's probably snow on the ground or ice on the ground. Um, but two, there's, there's no point. There's, there's the turf. It would just be zero. There's, you couldn't, there would be no clippings in, in the container after if we did the harvest. So it'd be, this would be zero in my climate, whereas in his climate, you're looking at same seven grams per meter square. So my point being is that it seems reasonable that he, you would see these responses in a climate that the turf is growing, but I would not recommend that in my climate because I know the turf is going to be frozen or, or dormant during that time period. And it says here ground cover was not influenced by different fertilizer applications. So there was no difference in ground cover. So let's go to the conclusions. Um... This is what confuses me. I, I don't really know why this was here. You saw there was nothing in the results or, or discussion about potassium. I mean, literally nothing. Let's go back up here and look. I'll show you. The tables all have um, turf color. There's These are in timing of applications. Some of these received potassium. Some of them didn't. Um, I'm assuming they pooled them together. I don't know because they don't explain it. Um, unless I missed it, they don't explain it. So, I mean, I very well could have missed it, but I don't see anything in here that explains what they did with the potassium. This here, this, all it is is dates. Some of them contain, had potassium. Some of them didn't. I'm again, I'm assuming they pulled them. Um, again, like I said, I, I could have missed it, but, and then you get down to the conclusions and it says the trial results results suggest that potassium fertilization does not influence the visible characteristics of of tall fescue turf okay so you know <laughs> i don't want to get into it too heavily now but you're going to see that same conclusion over and over and over when we get to potassium potassium is one of the biggest grifts in a turf grass industry the 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 chances of you seeing a turf grass response to a, to the actual potassium element not potassium sulfate but the actual potassium element are very very low very low so if you're looking to save money you can I mean, do whatever you want to with the how you're charging the customer but if you're looking to save money you can great i don't know what you're applying but if you're applying any potassium at all there's a very good chance that you can eliminate or minimize that at, at, le- at the least minimize the potassium, reduce the cost in the bag of fertilizer and save yourself that money. Now, I'm not going to say that in every case. Clearly, there's cases in the literature where the application of potassium benefited turf. Okay. But in many, many cases, I don't even know how many publications I have on potassium. Some of them show differences, but most of them don't. Okay, and here's another one that doesn't. Fertilization does not influence the visible characteristics of tall fescue turf and under these conditions. And they don't show the results. Unfortunately, I can't go in there and show you because they don't show them, but that's what they concluded. A single fertilization of two pounds of quick-release nitrogen, ammonium sulfate, 
was not sufficient in maintaining a satisfactory color and quality rating for the whole fall period. Um, so the whole fall period, yeah. So the September application, I think that's what they're talking about. Early fall fertilization maintains turf grass in a good condition until the end of December when color intensity starts to decrease. Late applications at the end of fall or beginning of winter are less effective in increasing color and quality of turf. Finally, the research shows how fall nitrogen application is a powerful tool to improve tall fescue turf, winter quality, and color. And the best time of application in central Italy was on late November. Okay. So in this particular study, we're talking in the pri prior to this, we were talking about September, October applications. And now this one says November. Remember, Dr. Miltner said the same thing. November, perhaps even as late as early December in western Washington, a climate very similar to the conditions of Pisa, Italy. He found the same thing. So um, just be mindful that you can't go in and uniformly across all conditions and say, no, you're applying it. Um, you're applying this in November. You shouldn't do that. Well, in Lexington, Kentucky, I would say, yep, there's a pretty good chance you shouldn't do that. But in the, especially this year, it's already frost outside. The turf grass is slowing down. And it's still growing a little bit, but not much. But next year, it might be 70 degrees outside in November. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Okay, so, um, you know, just be aware that we're, we're really talking about is the growth habit of the turf, not the date on the calendar. Okay. Uh, let me look through and see if I saw anything or see anything. If any, any questions, you want to put them in the chat now. I'll do my best to address them. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, so Tony Bender says, I wish soil temps were associated with the calendar dates with all this research. Well, a lot of the research does contain the temperatures that existed on that time. In fact, nowadays it's pretty much standard. I don't see it in this paper. Yeah, I don't I don't see what the temperatures were in this paper, but but again, this was, you know marginally refereed paper okay and so you you i suspect strongly you couldn't even come close to getting this paper in crop science unless you had the climate uh, the, the meteorological data in the paper so people know um, what was the temperature at the time of the study what was the rainfall throughout the study they need you know we want to know that um so i do too i mean the soil temperatures are, are critical to understand kind of the context of what happened um so Randy, who's in Bulgaria, if I remember correctly, my grass goes dormant in January. I'm spoon feeding it till NY. What is that? New year? Spoon feeding it until new year, I guess. I don't know what that means. That's why I like soil temps or average air temps. Yeah, well, soil temps are are more, I think, are, are a better metric to use to, you know, schedule your applications or have an idea of what's going on. Most of the, the turf grass uh, scientists will, will use soil temperatures more than just air temperature because it's the it's less fluctuating and it tends to be stronger correlated with um, with what we see in the turf grass responses. Um, but anyway, so that's it. I have one more paper. There was a comment made a, yesterday or day before yesterday from a, a viewer we have in Canada. Apparently, ironically, the last paper I'm going to go over in, in fall fertility will be on Monday from Canada. Um, so we have the last couple of papers today is from Italy, inter the international inclusion here. 
the last couple of papers. So one was Italy today, and then Monday will be in Canada, talking about what happened in Canada. Uh, and that's it. Next week right now will be a schedule, a normal schedule, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday at 10 a.m. and Wednesday at 9 p.m. I haven't yet decided what the next topic's going to be. If you want to throw in your two cents, uh, let me know on an email or chat. There was a comment made, I can't remember who it was, uh, about Thatch. I have, I don't even know, 30, I think I counted yesterday, 33 articles on Thatch. I am not going to go over 33 articles on Thatch, guys, <laughs> okay? I'll, I'll, it'll drive me insane. Um, I, I, what I might do is just briefly touch on the three or four papers that have to do with thatch reduction, chemical thatch reduction, or the lack thereof. There are some articles that show um, some influence um, on thatch reduction on some turf grasses uh, using some specific uh, products. But I'm not, I spent what, a month? Well, how long have been doing fall fertility? A month, two months? I could spend another two years doing nothing but fall fertility and love every day of it. But you put me on thatch, um, <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> um, yeah, so loony. So the, que the comment in the chat is this. I'm glad you asked that. No question about today's episode, but what happened yesterday's ammonium sulfate short? It was taken down. You have to remember my the the magnitude of my technological incompetence is unsurpassed. You keep that in mind at all times, okay? <laughs> so what happens is I'll do the show and then I'm I go outside. I got 14 yards of mulch just got delivered 30 minutes before the show and I got to move it to my backyard. So I'll be outside working today and I'll listen to the show or I'll do it. I was like, "Hey, that's a good little good little snippet I can grab." And so I'll grab it. And I'll say, oh, I can make this into a little short. I've finally figured that out. But then later, I like to trim off the beginning of the show and the end of the show where the intro is for like the long-term, you know, future listeners who are in, listening to the show later. And when I do that, it deletes the short. It says, your short has been removed from YouTube, da, 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 da. I'm like, ah. So I keep forgetting I need to wait a day or two and then get everything cleaned up and then do the short. So the reason it was removed is because I screwed up <laughs> once again. And literally five minutes before the show started today, my whole computer, the audio completely crashed and I had no ability to speak or hear anything. So I scrambling around here trying to get my microphone all set up and it wasn't working. So do not underestimate the level of my technological incompetence. Okay. It knows no bounds. Um, so anyway, but I'll put those back up. There's a couple of shorts I had up and I took them down or YouTube took them down. And I'll put them back up later today if it's all working fine. So thanks for asking about that. You guys have a great weekend. It's nice and cold. Spend some time with your family. Treat people kindly. I'll be back on Monday at 10 a.m. Until then, thanks so much for showing up. It really means a lot to me. Okay, guys, have a good week. Weekend. Bye-bye.